Then God said, let us make a man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to the Leeward Campus of Christ community. I'm Tom, and um, I have just a wonderful privilege of opening God's word to you this morning as I serve on the teaching team at Christ Community, and we... Uh, Trust that you've had a good morning and as we worship the Lord together. This morning we're continuing our message series. Uh, we began last week. Uh, in seven weeks we are examining the common cultural narratives of our time, prominent narratives that vie for our attentiveness and our allegiance. If you were here last week, we began examining a very prominent cultural narrative. You only live once, or better known by rap artist Drake, YOLO. After last week's message, I love that one of our congregant members here at Leewood uh, said to me that uh, he'd seen the YOLO sign on a car in front of him at a drive-thru. So I thought I'd show you this. It's like he said, it's right there, YOLO. So it is many, many places. It's a common way of thinking. And um, we compared the YOLO narrative uh, to the Christian story last week. We made the case that the Christian story is a better, better story. We looked at the very first uh, verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, seven Hebrew words. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we said that the Christian story is an unsurpassable story. We said it for three reasons. First of all, the Christian story makes sense. Secondly, it fits our life experience, and third, it offers hope. So this morning, you ready? We're going to examine another very prominent cultural narrative of our time. And the narrative could be explained this way. It's uh, what matters most is to be true to yourself. Now, in this series, we'd like you to engage with us. I mean, we always like that, but we have a text for you. I know on Monday, it's too hip for me, but a lot of people engaged in Facebook Live across our campuses uh, thinking their thoughts and raising questions. And again, wherever you are in your faith journey, you're welcome here. And uh, we are a people who want to think well, love well, and serve well. And uh, we hope, again, you will find a place to think well and to love well and serve well. So welcome to Christ's community. So before we begin the second message in this series, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, our audience one. We thank you for the gift of this morning and the gift of your church and the gift of your word. We pray, Lord, for our fellow citizens in Texas particularly who are facing the fury of Hurricane Harvey, that you would be with them and the first responders and give them your grace in the midst of a trying time. And now, Lord, whatever we're thinking about, whatever distractions, whatever heartaches, whatever joys that occupy our thoughts and minds, may our minds and hearts focus on you for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to suggest to you that if there is a preeminent quest in our contemporary 21st century Western culture, I believe it is 
the quest for personal authenticity. It seems to me, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, social media, song lyrics, books I read, just about everywhere I go, the quest for personal authenticity is at a high pitch. We hear over and over again, the most important is you do you, you do you. And this cultural narrative is attractive, right? Because I don't think any of us wants to be inauthentic. Personal authenticity matters. It strikes a resonating chord within each one of us because we want to know who we are and why it matters. Many in our culture seek to convince us that if we are just true to ourselves, we will find ourselves on the path to happiness and human fulfillment. Being true to yourself is the good, true, and beautiful life. That's what we're told. Now, in a Huffington Post article not too long ago, there was an article entitled, What is Being True to Yourself? And it is written by a very smart person. I, I love his name. It fits the article. Let's get this. Ready? Michael Feely. Right? <laughs> Just thought that was great. And he advocates this cultural narrative. And Feely does make some good points, right? He speaks into our frenetic, busy culture, and he encourages us to slow down and to examine our lives. And he says, I mean, wisely, many of us get so busy making a good living, we have no time to make a good life. Michael Feely writes these words. He says, start examining your life. See if every single situation you're involved with is healthy for you in mind and heart. He says, ask, am I being true to myself? If not, find out why and change it. And these are some good words. They remind us of Socrates' wisest admonition, the unexamined life is not worth living. But Feely makes a big jump at the end of his article, a giant leap from the importance of an examined life to a human life centered around self as the highest aspiration and value in life. This is how he concludes his article, which heralds the you-do narrative of our time. Remember, he says, you're the game changer. You're in charge. You're the boss of you. You set the ground rules and the boundaries. No one else has that superb power or pleasure. No one else ever should live your truth. See, Feely is not just advocating the goodness of personal authenticity. He is advocating a life built solely around the supremacy of self. His words echo 19th century William Ernest Henley's most famous poem, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But is being true to yourself, the captain of your soul, the best story to live your life by? What if you do you leads to a dead-end street and actually hurts many people around you? What if being true to yourself is a lot less about you than you thought? What if you are created to be true to someone else? If you brought a Bible this morning, which I hope you did, electronic or paper, turn with me to the very first chapter in the Bible, the Old Testament book of Genesis. This morning we are going to compare 
the be true to yourself, you do narrative with the Christian story. And as I said last week, I'm going to suggest three reasons, compelling reasons, I believe, why the Christian story is unsurpassable and it is the best story to live by. First, and if this sounds a little bit by, like I've been influenced by Theodore S. Geisel and Dr. Seuss, I have. Maybe it'll help you remember these important truths. First, the first reason is you were created for more than you. You were created for more than you. Now, with your Bibles open in Genesis chapter 1, notice that the story, the Christian story, begins not with your reality, but with God's reality. In the beginning, God in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's a picture of all creation. It's a mirrorism. It's called all heaven and earth. Every reality, material and spiritual. It's a way of saying two words describing the whole. It's a literary device. You'll notice that Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 is a seamless literary unit. It is unfortunate that chapter 1 and 2 break in the English text where they do. The literary unit follows a poetic pattern around seven days. Hebrew word day or yom refers sometimes in Torah or the instruction of the Old Testament in a 24-hour way and sometimes a longer period or an era. It can be either. Now observe with me how the Genesis writer begins in verse 1 featuring God as creator. Okay? And it ends in chapter 2, verse 3, with God as creator. You see how creation, creation, we call this, it's a technical word, but it's like a literary bookend, an inclusio. It sets the main theme of the whole chapter, is God as creator from beginning to end. It's brilliant Hebrew poetry and narrative, both. The Hebrew word translated creator is only used in the Old Testament with God as the subject. This is very important. Because the Genesis writer is saying here, God is unique in his creative ability and capacity to speak into existence by the very power of his spoken word. This is why at the beginning of each of the seven days of creation, this phrase appears. In the Hebrew text, it's very emphatic. And God said, and God said. Not only does God speak material creation into existence, notice it's not a perfunctory kind of dissonance. It is a sense of giddy delight in the beauty and goodness of his unfolding creative masterpiece. So the Hebrew writer interjects God's creation and God's giddy approval by saying, and God said, you see that? And then God saw that it was good. God said it, and he saw it, and it was good. But when we get to the sixth day of creation, the crescendo, the Hebrew writer explicitly adds a, a strong adverb. He portrays now God's extraordinary, giddy delight. It's like God says, I've outdone myself. And in verse 31, it says, God saw everything. In other words, once he hit six, and the crown of creation, it all came together in a brilliant display of love and light. Behold, it was what? Not just good. Don't miss this word. It was very good. It was awesome sauce. Not just awesome. 
It's awesome sauce. What was it about God's creative masterpiece, the writer sh- reader should ask, that brought such extraordinary joy to God himself who has everything and needs nothing? <laughs> wow. It was the sixth day of creation when the sparkling crown of creation was carefully crafted. Look with me again at verses 26 and 27. When, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, I want you to notice the shift of first personal plural pronoun, us. Because here is a hint, and we know this from the rest of the canon, that there is a Trinitarian delight and deliberation going on here. Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you feel it? Do you sense it? And there is a sense of interaction. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Notice the beautiful symmetry of this. Male and female, he created them. Image, image, create, create, create. Do you see that? It jumps out at you. The importance of this verse or these verses in the English text to the Christian story, to your life and mine, cannot be overstated. It is the foundation of the whole Christian story. It is the foundation of Christian ethics and how human flourishing can take place in the world, regardless of what we believe. The world pivots on are humans intrinsically valuable or are they expendable? There is so much to ponder here. And I'm going to encourage you as thoughtful listeners and engaging people of mind and heart, look at these verses carefully. Study them in Genesis 1 and 2. But let me make a couple crucial observations, okay? First, what we find in verse 26 as the creation account unfolds is what I would call jaw-dropping discontinuity. What do I mean? If you look immediately preceding, at the preceding verses and meaning flows out of context, describing the creation of animal life on earth, you will notice that God made, and he repeats it, animals according to their kinds. Do you see that? The Genesis author will repeat this phrase twice in 24 and three times, for goodness sakes, in verse 25. He doesn't want it to miss it. doesn't want us to miss it. But when we get to verse 26, something new emerges. God says, and notice the first person plural pronoun again, let us make man or humankind in our image after our likeness. Notice humans are not made according to their kinds like the animal world, but rather in God's image. Then in verse 27, the idea of humans being made in God's image is repeated again twice. He doesn't want us to miss it. This bold and tightly packed repetition is the literary emphasis we must not miss. That's true in English, it's true also in Hebrew, where the Old Testament was written except for just a small space where there's Aramaic. It's hugely important in the narrative. Here the Genesis writer solidifies the unique distinction of humans. But notice, not in isolation, within the integral nature of the whole created order. Do not miss this. So when we stop to think about it, Moses could have started the story. Moses is most likely the author of Genesis. I believe that. He could have just simply said, 
in the beginning, God made us and move on. Not at all. Don't miss this. Instead, he takes two entire chapters <laughs> to show how we as humans fit within a broader creation narrative, that we are part of a larger whole, that as important as we are, we were created for more than just us. The English word image comes from the Hebrew word salem. Scholar John Kilner has written the best book in the 21st century. I think the, all, all the church that I'm aware of on the image of God, what this Hebrew word means. It's called Destiny and Dignity. It's a book he wrote. It conveys, as he articulates, two central ideas, this idea of image. It conveys connection and reflection. In other words, as created humans, we are uniquely created to reflect God's glory to the universe because we mirror God in a unique way. But don't miss the emphasis. It's the primary emphasis is relationship or connection. Bearing God's image, His triune image, by divine, and by divine design and desire, we are relational creatures. We were created with relationships in mind, relational intimacy with God and with one another. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we learn a bedrock truth. I was created for more than just me. I was created for God and for others. A very helpful resource that we have mentioned across our campuses and teaching team came out this year from the Gospel Coalition. It's called the New City Catechism. Uh, it's an outstanding spiritual formation tool for individuals, but also for families with children and grandchildren. I highly recommend it. Question four in a catechism, you have a question and answer if you're not used to that language. It's a kind of a religious language, but it's a really great way to cement sound doctrine and spiritual formation in our lives. Question four is how and why did God create us? And the answer is embedded in the rich truths of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God created us, notice, male and female in his own image to know him, to love him, to live with Him and glorify Him. And it is right that we who are created by God should live to His glory. The biblical story reminds us that we were made for someone else. You and I were created to love God, to know God, to love my neighbor, and to work and exercise dominion within creation. And we're going to examine that aspect of our created nature next week. So don't miss it. Genesis chapter 1 affirms that as an image bearer of God, you have great worth, unimaginable worth. So let me just simply say that there is some important truth to the you-do narrative. You-do-you narrative. There is. The you-do narrative gets part of the story right. But it is impoverished. Because chapter 3 of Genesis tells us there's also bad in you and me. To do you, you do you, is filled with possibility, yes, but it's filled with peril. In Genesis chapter 3, we encounter the tragedy of sin and a cosmic rebellion. It enters God's integral creation and it disintegrates it, including our true selves. 
a part of that sinful disintegration of self is that now our sense of self shifts on the whims of the blowing sands of culture and narcissistic, navel-gazing, looking in rather than tethering it to an unchanging, transcendent vantage point of God himself and being made in his image. A true sense of self, based on self-exploration and cultural norms, can shift dramatically during life, and it's an overwhelming burden. One of the books that I've enjoyed reading recently uh, is a New York Times bestseller. Maybe you read it. J.D. Vance has sold zillions of copies already this year. It's Hillbilly Elegy. It's a fun story to read. It's an autobiographical sort of journey about J.D. Vance's growing up in a very unstable, broken home, an impoverished family in rural Appalachia. He finds his life, imagine the contrast, to being in law school at Yale. And he talks in this memoir of his journey of self and discovering self and the dissonance with that changing in his life. One of my favorite parts of this book, because I can relate to this, is J.D. Vance talks about what it was like getting cut off in traffic. <laughs> you don't want to see Pastor Tom when that happens. It's one of my low moments, just want to say. He describes this dissonance with these words. A couple of years ago, I was driving in Cincinnati with Usha, that's his wife, when somebody cut me off. <laughs> I honked. The guy flipped me off. And when we stopped at the red light with this guy in front of me, I unbuckled my seatbelt, opened the door. I planned to demand an apology, and he says, and fight the guy, actually. But my common sense prevailed, and I shut the door before I got out of the car. Usha was delighted <laughs> that I had changed my mind before she yelled at me to stop acting like a lunatic, which has happened in the past, he writes. See, the other driver's sin was to insult my honor, and it was on that honor that nearly every element of my happiness had depended as a child, for it kept the school bully from messing with me, and it gave me over to something where I could exercise complete control in my out-of-control life. J.D. Vance's story is remarkable, and it's amazing in its cultural appeal for multiple reasons. But I think in a large part, it is his quest to find his true self. Something that is not only difficult, but ultimately unsatisfactory as a compass setting for life. It is his true sense of self, the self of a rural Appalachian blue-collar boy, where loyalty and honor were paramount, or is his true self now an affluent, educated Yale urbanite? with self-control and social polish all paramount in his life. He wrestles, should he be true to himself? Which self? What set of cultural values should guide him? See, when you do you, when you do you as your ultimate quest, it becomes incredibly burdensome. Because we spend so much narcissistic, navel-gazing energy trying to discern who we are among all the myriad of choices and desires and disordered loves of our heart and my heart and your heart. 
Is our true self merely a personal construct we create? As we are told, a social construct imposed on us? Or is it anchored in something much less fragile and transient? Something more stable and timeless? That we are made in God's image. See, the Christian story tells us life is more than just you doing you. You were created for more than you. But the second reason the Christian story is so compelling is you find you when you lose you. You find you when you lose you. The quest of our times is to be true to ourselves, isn't it? But brilliant Jesus confronts that idea head on. He doesn't blink. Jesus presents the good life, the truly good life in a Stoic tradition, which he understood, of Stoic philosophy, is found not in finding your true self, but in losing yourself. So in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 24, we read Jesus' words. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Here the picture of cross is a a vehicle of execution, it's a metaphor of execution of giving up your life and follow me. Now notice what Jesus says, friends. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus' sake, will find it. And then it's as if I maybe do a loose loose paraphrase, for goodness sakes, what will it profit you if you gain all the world and lose your very soul or self? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus presents to us the paradox of happiness. If we pursue a self-absorbed you-do path, you-do-you path to happiness, it will eventually betray us because yourself and myself are not big enough for how you were created. You are not big enough in yourself to find your true self. This makes sense when we understand Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? From the opening pages of the Bible, we learn we were created for more than just us. We were made to be true to more than just ourselves. We were made to be true to someone else. And Jesus summarizes, of course, this brilliance. He summarizes the whole Testament, the three sections of the Old Testament, in what is the great commandment. If you've read the Bible at all, or you've been a Christian a while, or you're just checking out the Christian faith, you've heard of the great commandment probably. It's woven into the capital, residual capital of our culture, our Christian capital. Jesus said, all of it's about this. To love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, we are to properly love ourselves. That's what the you-do narrative gets right. But notice, Jesus says, loving ourselves properly is placed in the context of loving God and our neighbor properly. And don't miss Jesus' progression of thought here. It is important for us to grasp Jesus places what? God first, our neighbor second, and ourself third. In many ways, the Academy Award movie, a Disney movie, Frozen, was wonderfully creative. If you liked this movie, I thought it was very creative. But the you do... You cultural narrative is ensconced in the character of of Elsa, if you follow this movie. Elsa is keenly 
rejecting the girl her society is trying to make her. Instead, the big phrase, right, is let it go. Let it go. And it expresses what she has been holding inside her. There's no right, there's no wrong, no rules for her. It's me, 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 me. But Jesus points us in a very different direction, doesn't he? Being true to yourself is not about looking within. But rather looking to Jesus, the one who created you and desires you to experience the life you were created to live back in a garden before sin and death entered the world. You were created for more than you. Jesus says you find you when you lose you. The third reason I believe the Christian story is a better story to live in is you are most you when you are most like Jesus. You are most you when you are most like Jesus. I remember my daughter Sarah was young. She's now a grown-up, sophisticated lady. But she had a way of connecting with my emotions. She had a way of discerning her dad. She still does, which is scary. And I remember getting ready to go speak somewhere out of town. And uh, I was feeling insecure. It was a large, a large venue. And, you know, public speaking for any of us is scary, but the more people out there and lights, it's very scary. I was feeling insecure about it, and she was picking up. She was probably being grumpy. So she knew I was going to go speak, and she looked at me. She's about this high. She looked at me, and she said, Dad, <laughs> with her big chocolate brown eyes, Dad, be yourself. And then she paused. I'll never forget what she said next. But be your best self, Dad. Wise words from a young lady. She was doing her best to encourage me. And striving to be our best is a worthy endeavor. But when we grasp what the Holy Scripture teaches, even our best self doesn't cut it. What I need most is not my best self. I need a new self. And the truth is, you do too. The good news of the gospel is that a new self is available. When we embrace the gospel, we become a new person, the scriptures say. A new self is created, a new you. The apostle Paul, who experienced this in his life as a rabbi, who knew Genesis, memorized it, speaks of the new you in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, this letter to the Corinthian church, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are, notice Genesis, they are a brand new creation. All things have passed, new has come. Paul is utilizing the language of Genesis 1.1. He's connecting the dots. He's pointing to Jesus, our creator and our redeemer. And in gospel redemption, we have been made new as we place our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are declared forgiven forever, once and for all, because of what he's done on the cross. The gospel doesn't simply make us better, it makes us brand new. That's why it's such good news. And the very down-to-earth implications of this truth is stunning to your life and mine. Let me suggest two implications for you to think about this week. First, you have a new identity in Jesus. Today, the word identity is used a lot, right, with a lot of debate and rancor. 
There is gender identity debates, ethnic identity. We hear identity politics. It's not that gender and ethnicity do not matter. They do. That's a big part of who we are. Yet regardless of gender and ethnicity, being in Christ and part of His church is our most essential identity. We need to grasp that gospel identity is something we do not achieve. It is something we receive. Paul says it is received by grace through faith. Our identity is in Christ. Liz and I, my bride Liz and I, love attending our annual, well, I guess we do it twice, but our summer baptismal service. We attended it last Sunday night and put our feet in the water. We were observing all the families and people from our campuses and all the baptism. It was amazing. Perfect night. And before the baptism, Pastor Naya, who serves as our pastoral resident at our Shawnee Mission campus, so beautifully highlighted in her homily how baptism declares our new identity. That we are now sons and daughters in Christ. We are part of Christ's family, the church. And she used the most important text, Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Let me read it to you. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, sons and daughters in our culture, of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Identity and family. It's not that the gospel somehow eradicates our gender or ethnicity. It simply transcends this as a more foundational entity because of Jesus' atoning death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his bodily resurrection, we have been declared as having right standing before a holy God. Once we were alienated from him by our sin, we have now been reconciled in Jesus. We are now Christ's beloved, as Henry Nouwen so brilliantly in his Roman Catholic tradition speaks of. We are part of God's family now for all eternity. So you may be here this morning and you are questioning God's love for you. Let me remind you that if you've embraced the gospel, God's love for you is so amazing whether you're successful, non-successful, whatever your life circumstances, his love is unconditional and unwavering. You are loved, tenderly loved, affectionately loved, with everlasting love. There is no person in this world, no mate, no friend, not even yourself, that can love you like Jesus can. You are his beloved. This is one of the most compelling reasons why the you-do narrative is so impoverished. Because self-love will never satisfy your heart. It was never designed to. See, it's not just about who I am, but whose I am. You are most your true self in Christ. So where are you finding your identity? In your popularity among friends? your academic success or work success, in your political party or cause, in your sexual orientation. So you are most you when you are most like Christ. In the gospel, we have been given a new identity, but also we've been invited to a transforming apprenticeship with Jesus. We've been given a new apprenticeship. 
the only one who is completely true to himself, gave himself away on a cross. It is Jesus' atoning work on the cross that makes it possible for him, the perfect son of God, the sinless son of God, to invite sinful creatures like you and me into this intimate relationship we were designed to have in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. It is in this apprenticeship with Jesus where we live out our new self, our new identity, under his guidance and constant care and provision and presence in every nook and cranny of life. He is always with us to tenderly encourage us, to guide us, to give us wisdom when we are apprenticed with him. Jesus gives this amazing invitation to all those who embrace him as their Lord and Savior when he says, come, come to me, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I can't think of a more weariness and heavy laden than a life lived around the black hole of self. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rabbi Jesus picks the word rest right from Genesis 2. The life he had for you. Take my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find the life you are looking for, the life you are longing for. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The you-do cultural narrative is so enticing, but it's incredibly burdensome. We cannot live out the great commandment to love God and our neighbor without apprenticeship to Jesus. It's impossible. As yoked apprentices of Jesus, we seek in the power of the Holy Spirit and in local church community together to become increasingly like Jesus as we learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. In Christ, you have a new identity, but you are also invited into a transforming apprenticeship that changes your life from the inside out. You and I are most true to ourselves, our true selves, our created selves, when we are most like Jesus. And we become like Jesus over time, as we are yoked to him in obedience and submission in a life of apprenticeship with him. Will you let Christ define who you are? Will you? Will you be defined by gazing within or following the many voices of the shifting sands of a you-do-you cultural narrative? See, I believe the Christian story is unsurpassable. Why? Because you were created for more than you. And you find you when you lose you. Ultimately, you are most you when you are most like Jesus. Will you do you? Or will you do Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you encourage us. Holy Spirit, may you prod us wherever we are in our spiritual journey. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And may your love speak deeply into our heart and mind and bodies this morning.